Well, let me invite you to take God's Word and turn to the book of Ruth, chapter number 3. Um, I made no secret about it over the past two weeks. Chapter 2 of the book of Ruth is my favorite chapter in the book of Ruth. But chapter 3 contains my favorite verse in the book of Ruth. And it could very well contain my favorite verse or one of my favorite verses in all of the Old Testament. And so we are in Ruth chapter 3. And let me remind you, when we left off in chapter 2, Ruth is gleaning the harvest in Boaz's field. And she lives with Naomi, and she gleaned until the end of the har- harley and the or the barley and the wheat harvest, uh, which was about five months after she began. And so five months has passed since the initial meeting with Boaz, and we're wondering where is this thing headed. And so in Ruth chapter number three, we'll begin in verse one, and I'll let you know when we get to my favorite verse. Verse 1, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, that is to Ruth, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative which, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak. And go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. So she went out to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize her. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, and here's my favorite verse, Wait, my daughter, 
until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord. Does the name Candy Cummings mean anything to you? Probably not, unless you are a baseball fan, a baseball historian. Candy Cummings was a baseball player, a pitcher in the late 1800s. And he is credited with changing the game of baseball forever. One day while on the shore, he was throwing seashells. And he noticed as he turned loose of the seashell that the seashell seemed to curve a little bit as he threw it. And he thought, why can't I do that with a baseball? And so he took a baseball and he started using different grips and he started throwing with different spin on the ball until in 1867, he perfected the throw and in a game while he was pitching for Brooklyn, he threw what many believe to be the very first curveball in baseball history and revolutionized the game. Up until that point, pitchers just threw fastballs. They just stood on the mound, threw it as hard and as fast and as straight as they could. But now because of Cummings, now whenever a pitcher throws the ball and puts certain spin on the ball, the ball has the tendency to come near the pitcher and then take a nosedive to the ground. Or it can sometimes break horizontally. It can come straight and then break out or it can break in based on the spin. And I'll tell you something that is comical is when you watch millionaire baseball players stand in the batter's box, sitting on a fastball, and that just simply means he's waiting on a fastball. He knows that's going to be the next pitch. And the pitcher delivers a perfect curveball. It is hilarious. Sometimes it freezes the batter and he doesn't move because it catches him so off guard. And sometimes he is caught swinging at a ball that is in the dust, in the dirt, and he looks somewhat foolish swinging at the ball. But the reason is the pitcher threw him a curveball and it caught him off guard and he wasn't ready for it. You know, sometimes life is a lot like Candy Cummings. <laughs> life has the ability to throw curveballs at us when we least expect it. Life has the ability to throw things at us that leaves our world turned upside down in a moment's notice. And it seems like that the worst twists come when everything else seems to be going well. Have you noticed that? When things are going smoothly, things are going great, out of nowhere, a twist comes. A curveball enters the scene and it turns our world upside down. It could be something like our health. I know firsthand you go to the doctor just to have a routine checkup. The doctor finds a, an arrhythmia in my heart and now I'm three heart procedures and a pacemaker later standing here before you. And I wasn't expecting that on that March morning when I went to my doctor. It came from out of nowhere. Your job could look good. It could look secure. And you could be called in for a meeting that you think is just about trying to, to figure out a plan for the next week. And the boss lets you know that there's been some changes. And now you're going to be faced with a layoff. And you may have to end up finding another job. It could be something that's very tragic. Uh, this week, uh, Anthony Deal, who is a worship leader in, in, in Lexington, and, I, and one of my Facebook friends, uh, his wife, uh, and he and his wife were expecting their, first, their fourth child. And she goes for a routine checkup. 
and the doctor's unable to detect the heartbeat. There was no indication that anything was wrong. It was a routine pregnancy just like the other three. But she goes and in a moment, all their hopes come crashing down. Uh, I talked to Shelly's Uncle Crow uh, last night at his house. And he is the superintendent over at uh, Paintsville Waterworks. And a guy who delivers his chemicals to him is from West Virginia. The guy's wife had surgery last week. They were expecting her to have cancer. She goes in for surgery, has the surgery. The doctor comes out with great news. The surgery went off without a hitch, and there is no cancer. The doctor leaves. The family's relieved. The doctor returns 15 minutes later and tells the man that his wife just had a massive heart attack and died. What a curveball. I mean, what a twist life can throw at you. You know, when life throws its disappointments and its twists at you, it can leave you troubled, it can leave you stressed, and it can even cause you to doubt. Or, if your hope is placed in the right place, life's twists and curveballs can be the means of establishing and growing your faith even when it's tough. Well, Ruth 3 is one of those twists. We've been following the love story of Boaz and Ruth. And in chapter 3, the hopes that we have for them hit a major snag. I mean, we leave chapter 2, everything is going great. Ruth is gleaning in the field. Boaz is loading her up on barley, making sure she's got everything that she needs. Naomi has heard from Ruth about whose field she's gleaning in. Her eyes sparkle because she knows that Boaz is a redeemer and that he is able to redeem Ruth and provide rest for them. And for the first time in the book of Ruth, there is hope. But in chapter 3, something arises that could derail every plan Naomi has, that could derail every hope that Ruth has. But what we find in chapter 3 is we find How hope shines in the midst of darkness. How hope anchors us in the midst of doubt and questions. And we find how hope shines in the midst of twists and turns. So what I want to do is I want us to work our way through chapter 3. And we're going to work our way through in three different segments. And we're going to learn something about our hope and the hope that we have that anchors us. The first truth I want you to see in Ruth is that hope changes us. Hope changes us. Now, it begins in verse 1 with Naomi speaking. It said, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Now, Ruth and Naomi are at home. The harvest is over. And they're plotting and planning their next move. What's next? And Naomi speaks. But do you notice something different about Naomi when she speaks now as opposed to when she spoke back in chapter 1? There is something remarkably different about her. She doesn't even seem like the same Naomi. I mean, do you remember back in chapter 1 when we are introduced to Naomi? She's selfish. She is just focused on herself and she is just focused on the difficulties that have come her way. She's buried her husband. She's buried her two uh, sons. And she's very self-centered. She's very skeptical back in chapter 1. She says that the hand of the Almighty has gone out against me. She sees herself as bad luck. 
She sees herself as being God's enemy. She sees God as being out to get her. And if we're quite honest, we'll admit that she's kind of sour back in chapter 1 as well. You know, she comes into Bethlehem after being in Moab for a while, and the young ladies say, hey, is this Naomi? And she just hears them whispering, and she stops them in their tracks, and she says, hey, don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. No, call me Mara. That means bitter. She says, because God's been bitter toward me. Naomi in chapter 1 is someone who looks better in the rearview mirror. I mean, Naomi in chapter 1 is not a joy to be around. She is unthankful, she is unpleasant, and she is very inconsiderate. But now, in chapter 3, something changes. Now she's selfless. Her first words in chapter 3 are not about herself. They're about Ruth. My daughter-in-law, I need to seek rest For you, she's sweet, even referring to Ruth as my daughter. And she's even steadfast because what she's going to do in these next verses is she is going to lay out a plan for Ruth, a plan to get Ruth rest, a plan so that Ruth can get married and Ruth can be redeemed. And isn't it interesting? Chapter 2 begins with Ruth seeking food for Naomi. Chapter 3 begins with Naomi seeking rest for Ruth. Well, what has changed Naomi? Where has this transformation come from? Well, the answer is hope. Naomi now has hope. And now she smiles. And now she has a good outlook because she has hope in her heart because of one man. A man by the name of Boaz. You see, Boaz in chapter 2 is a near relative of Elimelech. That is Naomi's dead husband. And according to the law, he is responsible for redeeming Elimelech and his two sons' property and their name. As a matter of fact, hold your place here in Ruth and go back to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 25. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, we find the law of what's called the leveret marriage. Um, It comes from the Latin word lever. Now, that's not something that you use at work to move heavy objects, a lever. Uh, It is L-E-V-I-R, lever. And that simply means brother-in-law. It's the law of the brother-in-law marriage. And this was a law of God and a tradition in their day. And here's what Scripture says. In Deuteronomy 25, 5, it says, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son." The wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duties of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So basically, if I had a brother and... uh, and he was single, and I was married, and I died not having a son to carry on my name, my brother's responsibility then was to take my widowed wife, marry her, have a son, and the first son that they have together would be considered mine in my name to carry on my name so that my name would not be blotted out. All right, verse 7. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, Then his brother's wife shall go, now this is funny, shall go to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to uh, perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. 
He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elder and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Now, that's something. You want to spit in his face. I mean, take off his shoes, spit in his face, and insult him. But we've, so you, that's the law of the lever, lever at marriage. But there's a problem in the book of Ruth. And the problem is, what happened to the two boys? They both died. There are no brothers left. So then you step outside of that immediate context, the brothers, and then you get your closest cousin to feel the, to feel the responsibility. And so when, when Naomi hears about Boaz, she starts connecting the branches on the family tree, and she realizes something. Boaz is a close relative. Boaz fits the, the, fits the description of a redeemer. He is our redeemer. And that means... That if Elimelech had to sell land, if he had to sell something off when times got hard because of the famine, Boaz could then come in, not only marry Ruth, but also buy back everything that Elimelech had lost because of the famine. So now here Naomi is at the end of chapter 2, at the beginning of chapter 3, she's got hope. And she's got hope because one, she knows what God's word says. Listen, she knows what God's word says about the Redeemer about the situation. And you know what I find? Let me just say this. I find that when people know what God's word says about salvation, about his presence, about situations that they are in, even in the midst of despair, they still have a hope that anchors them because they know what God's word says. We say it in the, the, the hymn, feelings come, feelings go, feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God, not else is worth believing. Her hope sprung from her knowledge of God's word, and it changed her. Now, what does she do? Well, notice what she does here in verses 3 through 4. I love her. I love what she's saying. Well, one, she tells her, all right, Boaz is going to be winnowing his barley. But in verse 3, she gives her these commands. One, wash, therefore. Here's what she's saying. Clean up. <laughs> Take a shower. Secondly, anoint yourself. Freshen up. Put on your best perfume and put on your cloak. Dress up. Now, let me, let me tell you this. What she's telling her to do here, she's not telling her to dress provocative, provocatively and go down there to Boaz. In their culture, when you were in mourning, you wore certain garments that told everyone you were in mourning. Ruth has been wearing the garments of a widow. And now Naomi is saying to Ruth, Ruth, it's time to lay aside your widow's garments. Put on ordinary clothes and go down there. Dress up and go to Boaz. This is going to be a signal to Boaz. My period of mourning is over. And I'm ready to continue with a normal life now. And here I am. I am ready. So, so dress up. And then she tells her to look him up. Because she says, go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and, and drinking. And she's going to get a little stealthy here. She's going to go spy on Boaz. Watch what he's doing. And then after she looks him up, she's going to give him time to go to sleep. And when he lies down, observe, observe the place where he lies. And then go uncover his feet and lie down. 
Then she says, wake him up. <laughs> Wait till he goes to sleep, go uncover his feet, and lay down at his feet. Now, what in the world does that mean? We'll see what it means here in just a little bit. And then she says, hold up. Because after you do that, it says he will tell you what to do. Ruth doesn't know what's going on. She's just receiving these instructions from Naomi. So she's got to go to the threshing floor, watch Boaz, wait till he goes to sleep, then sneak in there, uncover his feet, lay down, and then trust the rest to Boaz. And so what does Ruth do? Ruth's going to do exactly what she tells her to do. At verse 5, she says, all that you say I will do. Now, it's at this moment we get a little bit giddy. It's at this moment we get excited, and it's at this moment we can almost hear the wedding bells in the background. Ruth's going to go down there. She's going to end up with Boaz, and you can feel the momentum building. Everything is going great. And hope has changed Naomi. Hope has given Ruth the direction now. But in verses 6 through 15, we find there's a snag. And just as hope changes us, we learn that disappointment challenges us. Because verse 6, Ruth does exactly what Naomi does. She, she takes a shower. She puts on her perfume. She puts on her clothing. She goes down. She waits for him to go to sleep. And while she's waiting for him to go to sleep, Boaz goes in. He lays down at the end of the heap of grain to make sure someone doesn't come and steal his grain or make sure animals don't come and eat his grain. And while he's asleep at midnight, she comes in, softly sneaks in, uncovers his feet, and lays down at his feet. And I don't know if Boaz is like me and he's got ticklish feet, but something wakes him up at midnight and he looks and he's shocked to find a woman there. Now, Boaz is not the only man in Scripture to go to sleep and wake up shocked. God laid the anesthesia to Adam, and Adam fell asleep in the garden. He woke up missing a rib and married. Jacob goes to bed, wakes up, thinks everything's going great until the sun comes in the window and shines on the face of his weak-eyed wife that he didn't know he was marrying. Woke up married to the wrong woman. I wonder how many times has that happened to men over the years. Boaz now. Goes to sleep after his heart's merry, his harvest is in, he's tickled to death. And he wakes up and there is Ruth waiting for him. And he has no idea who in the world it is, so his first response is a sanctified one. Who are you? And Ruth's answer to him is telling. I'm Ruth, your servant. And listen to what she says. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, the phrase spread your wings over your servant is key. It is crucial. And then she follows up that request or that command with a reminder. The reason you spread your wings over your servant is because you are a redeemer. Now, what does it mean when she says to Boaz, spread your wings over your servant? Well, do you remember what Boaz said about Ruth back in chapter 2? Whenever Ruth is gleaning in his field. If you go back to chapter number 2, he says this of Ruth in verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Watch this. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz says that in chapter 2, Ruth takes refuge under the wings of the Lord, which means she had trusted God. 
She had run to God for refuge. She was believing in God. And God was providing for her. And God was protecting her. And here what Ruth is doing in this passage is she is saying to Boaz, I want to run under your wings now. I want you to be my protection now. I want you to provide for me now. In another sense, what she is saying to Boaz, will you marry me? (laughs) This is Ruth proposing to Boaz. Now, this is probably not the most romantic uh, proposal of all, but that's the way they proposed in this particular culture, in this situation. You uncovered his feet. I'm not sure if that was to remind him, hey, if you don't do what you're supposed to do, we've got a meeting with the elders at the gate, and I'm going to take your shoe off your foot, and I'm going to spit in your face if you don't do what you're supposed to do as a redeemer. And when Boaz sees this, and he hears what she says, he knows exactly what she's saying, and he's blown away with it. He's excited about it. I mean, matter of fact, in verse 10, He speaks about Ruth, and when he speaks about Ruth, you get the sense that he loves her. You get the sense that he is just blown away by her. He says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men. He's basically saying, Ruth, you're young, you're beautiful, you're gorgeous, you're a hardworking woman. You could have any man in Bethlehem, and yet, You have been a person of integrity. You have not run after the young men. You've been a person of humility. You've been a person of loyalty. Because he says, whether poor or rich, and now my daughter-in-law, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. She was a woman of a good testimony. They've watched her work. They've seen what she's done. And they know that she is a keeper if there ever was one. And he even says, and now it is true, I am a redeemer. I mean, it sounds great. He's pro- she's proposed. He's taken the proposal. It sounds like it is going wonderful. Uh, and then there's the word yet. And that seems to send things in a downward spiral quickly. There's a redeemer nearer than I. That means, wait a minute, there's someone who is closer kin to Elimelech than I am. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Now, listen, she's just proposed to him. He says, yes, I want to marry you. But it's just not right right now. There's somebody else. It's it's that moment in the wedding ceremony that everybody hates. If anyone knows any reason why these two should not be joined together, let them speak now or forever. Let them hold their peace. You know, I always thought, why don't preachers do their homework before then? Find out before the ceremony whether there's a reason that they shouldn't be joined together. So I did the sanctified thing I know to do. I just cut it out of the ceremony. I figure, you know, they come this far, uh, we're good to go. Uh, but, But Boaz... He objects before the ceremony. He says, wait a minute. I want to redeem you. I long to redeem you. But redemption has to be right. It has to follow the exact law of God. You cannot shortcut redemption. It has to be right. And then in a moment, our hopes get put on hold. Our dreams get put on hold. The thought of the wedding ceremony gets put on hold 
And in a moment, life throws a twist at Ruth. And we really wonder, is this really going to happen? Is it really going to work out? Now, have you ever been there before? Have you ever been there where things seem to be going smoothly and then just all of a sudden you get a yet in your life? Things are going well, yet there's something that could derail it all. Again, this week I I sent a a worship leader in Indiana. His name's Jesse and his wife, Katie. I sent them an email. I I, I try and send them one uh, every year on, on, on May the 4th. Uh, because this past week on May the 4th, it marked 11 years ago when Jesse and, and Katie were learned that they were expecting their first child. Uh, you know, there's something special about that first time, the first pregnancy test that comes back positive, the first doctor's report, the first time you, you know, they, they do the ultrasound and the doctor says, oh, here's your baby, can you see it? And you lie and you say, yeah, I see it right there. You have no idea what you're looking at. But, oh, you're thrilled to death. You print it off, you put it out, and this is a picture of my baby, and you start arguing right then. Who does she look like? Uh, You know, what's the baby look like? There's just the initial excitement over the first one. Well, 11 years ago, she was pregnant with their first child. And at 20 weeks, everything had been going smoothly. But at 20 weeks into the pregnancy, they learned that the baby had a neural tube defect. And the doctors told Katie that uh, the baby would be born stillborn probably if, if the baby survived the term or if she had the baby that the baby would not live long after birth. And in most instances in, in America, women abort the baby. They abort the pregnancy, kill the baby. Uh, but that was never an option for Katie or Jesse. Uh, they continued to pray through the entire pregnancy, knowing God could heal, knowing that God could do the miraculous. But on May the 4th, she gave birth. She gave birth to a little girl. They named her Jessa Aaron Jordan. She was born at 7.43 on May the 4th. And she passed away at 8.30. She lived 47 minutes. She said on a Facebook post, she said, I've never been so happy with a decision as that one. We got to meet Jessa and see what she looked like. And though we didn't have her very long, I truly cherish that time. And I miss her every day. You talk about a twist. You talk about things going one way and you're excited about the baby, painting the baby's room, getting the crib ready and all of that. And in just a moment, it all comes crashing down. What do you do in those moments? Those moments, they do disappoint us. Those moments do try our faith. Those moments do disappoint us. Life disappoints us. Is faith and hope what we have that removes miscarriages, that removes heart attacks, that removes broken relationships, that removes layoffs at the job, that removes unexpected deaths? Does faith and hope remove those things from our life? No, not at all. But faith and hope anchor us in the midst of those things. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, the modern-day word of faith movement would have you to believe 
that the reason that tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus is that if you have enough faith and you believe God enough, you won't have tribulation. You won't have distress. You won't have persecution. You won't have famine. You won't have nakedness. You won't have danger. You won't have the sword. You won't face all of that because Jesus died to give you your best life now is what they tell you. Yeah, Jesus died so that all your life can be rosy. Your bank account can always be filled. Your body can always be healed and that you will never have problems. That's what they say. Matter of fact, they would conclude these verses this way. No, from all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. But that's not what Paul says. Paul doesn't say, no, from all these things, we're more than conquerors, which means he takes us out of those things. That's not what he says. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, which means what? In the midst of tribulation and distress, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In the midst of persecution, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In the midst of famine, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In the midst of nakedness, when we can't even clothe ourselves, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And in the midst of danger and sword and martyrdom, when we are counted as sheep for the slaughter, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Beloved, Christ does not remove our struggles. That's not what hope does. He does not remove the disappointments in life. That's not what he does. He anchors us in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our twists. And that anchors us in the midst of it all. So Ruth 3 shows us our hope changes us as Naomi shows us, but also disappointment challenges us. I often wondered this week, how much sleep did Ruth get that night? You propose to Boaz, Boaz says he wants to redeem you, but there's somebody closer and he may not redeem you, so just go ahead and sleep the rest of the night and, and, and we'll work this thing out in the morning. That's hard to do. You ever tried to sleep with unfinished business? It weighs on you. It's a burden. So what do you do? Well, he says, Ruth, sleep. So what do we do when hope changes us, but disappointment challenges us? Well, we've got to know this, that the Redeemer calms us. Now, we move. Ruth stays the night at Boaz, with Boaz. Now, there's nothing that even hints of anything illicit or sexual that goes on here. As a matter of fact, she sleeps at his feet. And uh, Ruth... Gives it, or Boaz gives out a command. Nobody's to say that she was here. He's protecting her reputation. And she gets ready to leave. And I love this. He tells her to come over here. She's wearing a new dress, you know. And uh, Boaz, uh, in typical man fashion, doesn't tell her how great she looks in her new dress. He, he says, pull your dress out here. And she pulls it out there. And he loads six, <laughs> six, uh, six uh, loads of barley upon her and, and gives her barley. You know, they often say the way to the man's heart is through what? His stomach. Apparently in the Old Testament, the way to a woman's heart is through barley because Boaz has just laid it on her one scene after the other after the other. And so here she goes back packing barley. Well, Naomi's expecting Ruth to come back with a wedding band or an engagement ring, and she comes back with more barley. I mean, she's been, she's been harvesting for five months. They've got enough food to, to supply them for a long time. They don't need any more barley. 
She comes back, and Ruth says, oh, uh, Boaz told me to bring this to you. Don't ever go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed, so here's the barley I'm giving to you. And then she fills her in on what had happened. Now, here's what I want to ask you. Naomi in chapter 1. If Naomi had set this up, and it seemed to fall through, how do you think she would have responded? I think she probably would have said something like this. See, Ruth, I told you God was against me. Not even a proposal can work out right. Nothing ever goes right for me. You might as well leave because I'm cursed and God's judging me and I'm afraid you're going to get in and you're going to be collateral damage. Don't be near me. As a matter of fact, that is what she said to Ruth in chapter 1 when she begged her to go back to her father's house, to her mother's house. But there's something changed in Naomi. Naomi now is one of my heroes of faith. Because notice how she responds to it. She, she just responds very easily. In verse 18, she replied, Wait, my daughter-in-law, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. She basically told her this. Be patient. Wait. Wait. And then she tells her, not only be patient, but to be confident. Be confident. Why? For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. How could Naomi be so calm when her plan seemed to fall through? How could Naomi say to Ruth, wait, when she had just sent her off to go get married and she comes back and she doesn't even have a promise ring? How can she say, wait? How can she express patience? Naomi could have patience because Naomi had confidence. And what did she have confidence in? She had confidence in a redeemer named Boaz. She's watched Boaz. She knows Boaz. And she knows that if Boaz said he's going to do it, he is going to do it. And as a matter of fact, she says he's not even going to rest. Until he settles the matter today. He's going to do exactly what he said he is going to do. You know, there is confidence. There is peace in knowing as Naomi knew. That redemption is not in your hands. Redemption is not in Naomi's hands. Redemption is not in Ruth's hands. They're not the one redeeming. They're the one needing redeemed. But redemption is in the hands of the Redeemer. And when she looked at Boaz, she knew he was going to do exactly what he said he would do. I, I said this week, uh, those of you who are Armageddon fans, Boaz is the Harry Stamper of the Old Testament. You know Armageddon? Uh, where Bruce Willis, Harry Stamper, sent to a meteor to blow it up so the earth could survive. And at the end of the movie, if you, you've never watched it and you don't want to, the movie spoiled for you, uh, I'm sorry, you can forgive me later. But at the end of the movie, there's something that goes, a lot of things go wrong, but the nuclear bomb that they had drilled and put in the center of the meteor has to be manually detonated. And so he sacrifices himself to manually detonate that bomb to save the world, save his little girl. And as the team gets on him, they fly off, they're waiting on it to blow up. But something had happened. He had dropped the, the switch. And they're debating, should we go back and blow it up ourselves? And go back and blow it up ourselves. And his soon-to-be son-in-law, AJ, says this. 
Harry Stamper cannot fail. He will do it. He will do it. He doesn't know how to fail. You know, at that part in the movie, you get all goosebumps and you're all excited and you cry like a baby when he blows it up and he sees his little girl. But the fact of the matter is, he can't fail. He's going to do it. Well, that's what Naomi says here about Boaz. Boaz is going to do it. He doesn't know how to fail. And beloved, when I think about my hope and I think about my redemption and when I look at my Redeemer, I feel today like Naomi felt in Ruth 3. <laughs> I look at Jesus. I look at all that he has done. And I know that I can rest confidently in my redemption and in my salvation. Because I trust in one who will not rest until all the matter has been settled. There is peace in knowing that your redemption is not in your hands. You think it's in your hands? Well, you have a bad day. And then you let me know how glad you are your redemption is not in your hands. You have a bad week. You have a bad month. And then come back and tell me, oh, I'm so thankful redemption is in my hands. No, no. When you have a bad moment, a bad day, a bad week, a bad month, you would best be glad that redemption is in the hands of a trustworthy redeemer. And in the covenant of redemption, before the world ever began, the Father entrusted the Son with redemption, with redeeming a people. And the Father determined that the Son would be a redeemer of his people and he would send him to this earth. And the Son willingly and gladly obeyed. Thus the Son leaves heaven takes upon himself flesh, lays aside his heavenly glory, and he becomes a man in order to purchase our redemption. And if you were to walk with him through the cobblestone streets of Jerusalem and the sandy shores of Galilee, what you would have seen is you would have seen a redeemer who would not rest until he settled the matter. When he is thrown from the synagogue, would that discourage him? No, no. Because he would not rest until he would settle the matter. When the multitudes thronged to him, but then they left because he wouldn't perform a miracle. And he taught them hard truths and they wouldn't stay. Did that discourage him? Did he stop? No. Because he would not rest until he had settled the matter. When one of his own would betray him for silver, would that stop him in his tracks? Would that cause him to throw up his hands and say, it's too tough? No, because our Redeemer would not stop until he had settled the matter. And when he bore that tree through the streets of the city and he was nailed to a Roman cross and for six hours when he becomes our sin and he suffers the wrath of almighty God and he could have called the angels at any time would he wave the white flag would he stop the plan of redemption no our redeemer would not rest until that day at three o'clock outside the city walls of Jerusalem when he looked up into the heavens and he declared it is finished. And he bowed his head and he died having purchased a bride for himself, having redeemed a sinful people to himself.
And I've got good news. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And 40 days later, he ascended back to the Father. And do you know what our heavenly Boaz is doing today? Is he resting? Is he taking it easy? Has he entered into his heavenly sabbatical? No. No. Because there's still work to be done and he will not rest until he settles the matter. One verse. Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 25. Listen to what the writer says. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Now what that means is this. It's impossible for God to save you to a greater degree than what you've been saved. Can't do it. It's to the highest degree. He can't save you any more than what he saved you. He's able to do this to those who draw near to God through him. How? Since he always lives. That means he's never going to die. He never slumbers and he never sleeps. Let me give you my translation. He never rests. Why? To make intercession for them. Which means what? Which means when I am saved, when he saves me, he intercedes for me and day and night and day and night. He is interceding with me and he will make sure that he delivers this sin-cursed human from earth to glory by interceding for me and you before the heavenly Father. He will not rest until he settles the matter. So, beloved, I don't know what disappointments have come your way. I don't know what heartache you have faced. And I don't know what disappointments are coming your way. And I don't know what heartaches you will face. But I do know this. When disappointments in life challenge you, and they challenge your hope, the one thing that you need to do is what Naomi did. Do not focus on the disappointments. Do not focus on the situation. Do not focus on the circumstances. No, focus on the one who will not rest until he settles the matter. And then you will know what it means to have confidence and you will be able to develop patience in the midst of your twists and turns in life. Let's pray.